tonight, you've been feeling it every time you fill up your car, every time you go to the grocery store. Well, new data reveals how long that higher inflation could really be hanging around. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. Record-breaking inflation number that we've had uh, over the past week. Big companies breaking up. There's a lot going on, Steve, right now in the financial headlines. To do that, we want to dig deeper into all of that. And, of course, we go to who we, have, we do every Monday, our resident data expert. Joining us, Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer from here at Allworth. You know, he manages billions of dollars from right here in Cincinnati. Andy, what numbers are jumping out to you right now? Because there's a lot of big numbers in the economy right now. Well, anything inflation is jumping out because it does seem to be coming in higher than what economists had been expecting, higher than what the Federal Reserve, which is our nation's central bank, has been expecting. And it's just making consumers feel uncomfortable, whether you're walking down the aisle of the grocery store trying to buy a new car, if you can even find one to buy, as these prices are higher and higher. And there are ripple effects that this could have an impact on how the economy uh, evolves over the next year or so. Andy, the investors I talk with, they're they're really concerned about inflation. And, and a lot of the people that are either coming up on retirement or have been retired for a while, they remember the late 70s and the early 80s. I do, too. And, and it was not pretty. The Fed keeps downplaying these inflation numbers, saying they're only transitory. It'll be over soon. But even the experts, the economists, are, are their estimates were way off. Inflation numbers actually came in much higher than even they expected last week. I, I mean, how how can they have credibility? How can we believe either of these groups when they say inflation should subside by the middle of next year? Well, the, the one thing I will say is that no one really has a good crystal ball uh, in general, and that's why you know we don't try to make you know any sort of big calls. It's focusing on the long run is really really key. And you know, our, we do think the, the most likely scenario, and things can you know keep changing, is that inflation does moderate at in the second half of next year. Uh, you know, part of that reason behind that is supply chain bottlenecks should start to ease sometime in the beginning ish of next year uh you know energy prices that's going to be a wild card because energy uh, has been fueling the higher inflation numbers as well it accounted for a third of the monthly gain uh that we had for last month when we look at the change in prices so that was a a, a big reason for the jump and when we just look at the bigger picture in general there are some other things that, that should help. The demand that we've seen from the reopening uh, should start to uh, dissipate. Uh, so we expect it to improve, but we do expect it to get worse before it gets better, right? Well, and so when you look at when you look at inflation right now um, and how we feel about it as Americans, right? Consumer sentiments, when you look at the economy, is pretty low right now. And um, I know a bunch of Americans, when asked, said, you know, we're predicting that inflation is going to stay high for a while. Let's talk about how inflation, if you're looking at it and expecting it to get higher, that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Let's talk about how that plays out. Yeah, so it's not just looking at the hard data like supply chains or energy prices. It's looking at what we call soft data, so surveys, what consumers think of inflation. And the reason we pay attention to that is because if people expect inflation, that can result in it becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we're looking at a few things here, right? One, the Fed does a survey of consumer expectations, which shows the highest uh, inflation expectations since this data series began, which is 
consumers expecting a 5.7% inflation over the next year. Uh, we also look at some other things like the University of Michigan does a really good consumer sentiment survey and there's an inflation uh, measure in there as well. And they're showing that the highest expected inflation really since 2008. And what this the survey data shows is that it, it shows us that inflation will probably continue to be kind of broad-based, not really just focused on reopening categories. We're already seeing it start to spread out into other areas like shelter or housing, if you will. And that can result in the uh, core inflation. So let's get rid of food and energy because those are highly volatile. So core inflation excludes that. Uh, by having higher inflation expectations, you can see the, the rise in core prices start to uh, be with us for a little bit longer than what is being uh, currently expected. And I guess I have a problem when you cut those things out. I know they're the most volatile, but everybody I know needs housing. Everybody I know needs energy. You, yeah. you know, so is that a valid point to, to cut those out? And, and here we yeah, are going it, into the wintertime. It is a valid point to cut those out. And I'll give you a real life example. 2008, you had oil almost at $150 a gallon. Do we think we wanted the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates right in the middle of one of the worst recessions of all time? Probably not. So, because what happens is, as inflation goes, you know the one. What's the cure for high prices? Well, high prices is a cure for high prices, right? So, if you exclude those, you can get a better view of what is really in the trend, and we can get rid of a lot of that volatile stuff and helps to avoid any sort of real policy mistakes that could result in you know, some just some really bad outcomes. I mean, I can't imagine if the Federal Reserve started hiking rates in 2008. I think that just would have been obviously the worst thing ever because they needed to go the other way on interest rates in order to try to keep the economy afloat. So that becomes a better tool for the Federal Reserve. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. Steve and I are joined by Andy Stout, our chief investment officer. Um, as we look at what's going on in the economy right now, we're all feeling it on Main Street, higher prices, inflation. And we're talking about the Fed here. Andy, I want to get what you think the Fed is looking at inflation now, because they've used the word transitory many times, um, but transitory is starting to look a lot more longer term, I think, to most of us who are going to the grocery store once or twice a week. Yeah, and the Fed has kind of updated their language as well as to what transitory actually means. You know, in the few months ago when they talked about transitory and they talked about inflation, they changed their wording, the wording from the inflation was largely reflecting transitory factors and they changed that to factors expected to be transitory. So they're walking back their own view on mm. what transitory actually means. So the Federal Reserve, what they're looking at, they're going to be looking at those uh, consumer expectations that we just talked about, where consumers are expecting high inflation because that does become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If they expect high inflation to continue, what that means is they could go to their employer and say, hey, inflation's going up and up and up. This 2% raise, that's not cutting it anymore. I need something more just to keep up with the cost of living. Then you start to see that wage pressure build, and that becomes you know, something that the Federal Reserve gets worried about because when you have higher inflation or higher uh, wage pressure, that leads to higher inflation in other areas. Now, some inflation is good, but too much inflation is bad, as we saw in the early 1980s. And Steve, you just brought that up a second ago about the early 80s inflation. You know, yeah, we probably won't get to those levels. I think that's a very unlikely scenario. But even if we were, one of the key differences is in the early 80s, late 70s, we were more of what's called in a stagflationary environment where we had little to no growth coupled with high inflation. 
we're still growing and we're still in a good spot from that perspective. Well, and I, I think that's the big positive is that the reason for the inflation is strong consumer demand, strong economy, and, and those are good things. But I, I'm still kind of surprised at, at, you know, that's all about the spending side, but let's talk about how it affects our investments and how it affects our, our 401ks. Are, are you surprised at how strong the market's been in light of these pretty high inflationary numbers? You know, I'm not really, and, and there's two reasons. I mean, a lot of, it's easy to focus on the bad. I mean, because that's what's thrown in our sure. face all the time. I like to try to take a balanced approach. So like, okay, that's bad. Inflation's not good. The, where it's at, it's not good. It's getting a little bit worse and it's gotten worse from where a lot of people thought it was going to be. But what about the other side of the ledger, right? We have record corporate profits. We have an economy with a very low chance of recession when we look out over the next six to 12 months. So those two things are really important because if you think of that, the value of a individual stock, it's really based on what their future earnings are. So if you see growing earnings and if you see low recession risk, because when you have a high recession risk or there is a recession, those future earnings drop, right? And that's going to hurt the stock price today. But low recession risk, growing earnings, those are very powerful uh, you know, characteristics when we talk about what could support the stock market and individual stock prices in general. And then, you know, that's on the stock side. Uh, and then certain types of stocks within the, the that broad asset class are doing a little bit better than others right now. Like small caps have been doing better than large caps. So small caps are just, you know, smaller publicly traded companies. And they're doing a little bit better because the thought is they can pass on higher costs at an easier uh, uh, pace or an easier uh, process than to uh, than larger companies can. So that's positive and for them. That's why small caps have been doing well, which was why everybody, in our opinion, should have a diversified investment mix. So it's important there. And it's also important to not look uh, away from bonds. I mean, bonds still serve a purpose. You know, inflation is traditionally not a great thing for bonds, admittedly. Uh, but with that being said, if you are, you know, focused on just uh, stock and you ignore bonds, you could be setting yourself up for a lot of market volatility, maybe too much to where you're actually uncomfortable with. So we still expect bonds to, you know, be a positive contributor to a portfolio. That's uh, That's a diversified portfolio that's out there. Andy, so much of what we want to do on the show is just boil it all down, right? What does it mean to me? And I don't think that you can underestimate, even here on Main Street, how much of an impact the chairman of the Fed has, right? It, you may not feel like this person has anything to do with your life, but the, the decisions and the policies that they pass down has so much to do with everyday life from how much you pay for a mortgage to jobs to inflation, all of those things. Uh, and so when we look at the fact that uh, the current chair, right, Jerome Powell, his term is supposed to expire in February, and the president is looking at, do we keep him in place or do we pull someone else in? Talk to me about how you think that could play out, because this is important. Well, there's two front runners for the position right now. One is Fed Chair Powell. The other is uh, Governor Lael Brainerd. And both Chair Powell and the governor are neck and neck right now in the White House's eyes. And they're both, you know, I would consider them slightly dovish. What dovish means as opposed to hawkish is that they're more concerned about making sure the economy keeps growing, you get full employment. A hawk is someone who is more concerned about inflation. So a hawk would be more apt to raise interest rates quickly uh, and be slow to cut rates. Whereas a dove would be more apt to raise interest rates slowly and cut rates more quickly. Uh, so from that perspective, when we think about Chair Powell and Governor Brainerd, they're 
both slightly dovish. So when we think about how it might play out down the road, I don't think there's going to be a material difference in terms of how the Fed reacts in the future to any sort of hiccups in economic uh, roadblocks that come up. So like inflation, I think they'll probably handle it very similar. So it could be a name change, but probably not a change in policy, which is probably good for all of us on Main Street and certainly what Wall Street's hoping for. Here's the Simply Money point. You know, data, it can always change. This latest batch of data has forced economists and Wall Street analysts to alter the way that they're looking at inflation. So don't be surprised if you are living with higher prices, at least for a little bit longer. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to our weekly podcast. It's the best of Simply Money on the iHeart app or wherever you find your podcast. Coming up, retirement myths we hear all of the time that can really derail your retirement plan. What you need to watch out for. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. Head at 643, how you can use this crazy labor market to your advantage. So maybe during this pandemic, you were forced to work from home in a way you never thought you could have before. But now that we're kind of moving out of this, here's a question. Do you enjoy working from home? And maybe how much do you enjoy it? Because, Steve, there are some people who are saying, listen, I would take a pay cut in order to continue to work from home. And in the level of people who feel that way is surprising. I know. It's it's about half of the people yeah. out there are, are saying that they would take a 5% pay cut. And I, I would like to see them walk the walk because in this, <laughs> in this hiring environment, let's get serious. You might tell a surveyor one thing, but, you know, when, when push comes to shove, um, I think I might like a pay raise and I would like to work from home. You might just want to try that one. And you've got a little leverage these days. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and I think when you look at the fact that inflation, right, is at a place where we haven't seen it in, in recent years, so we're paying more for things. And then you couple that with the same time, hey, I'll take a 5% pay cut to work from home. The numbers may not work, right? The budget right. may not work anymore when you get to that point. Yeah, but you know, you know, the neat thing is it it's the first time I've ever seen in my career employers are actually taking an interest in what's best for the employee. I, I yes. mean, they, in this environment, you have it's to. It's a shift. It, it, it's, it's a major shift, and, and you have to because what would you rather do, Amy? If you're an employer, would you rather hire somebody you don't know to take on an important position within your company or have the known quantity that's been with you, shown loyalty, um, keep them happy and and not have to retrain somebody new, you yeah. know? Well, so there's dollars and cents behind that, too. Oh, I, I just saw big where time. it could cost six to nine months of a person's salary to replace them in training, in the downtime that occurs. So there's a financial part of that equation as well. I, imagine that. It all comes down to profits with a company. <laughs> yeah, you know, but, but that, follow the money. I, I mean, it's yeah. true in so many things in life. But in this environment where, you know, again, you want, you want to make a ton of money, just start a, a business painting now hiring signs. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it, and it doesn't it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. So why wouldn't you keep your existing workers happy? We just got an email today internally about uh, the, the hybrid work policy. Do you think companies would have been talking about hybrid work policies two years ago, pre-pandemic? No. Three, uh, three four, five years ago, the environment was that you, you were 
five o'clock. Like if it was four fifty eight and you were leaving for a reason, like right, right, better be a good reason. And I, I think you're right. There's this shift toward no, maybe there's a little balance here that we can give. And I don't think that this kind of flexibility is going anywhere anytime. I, soon. I, I don't either. So many people, and I, I've got um, two sons that are married and have kids, and and you know they are so used to having this work flexibility that if their employer said, okay, um, starting tomorrow, back to work. If you're in at nine oh one, I'm docking you for the hour because it's after nine o'clock. Um, I, I don't think anybody would be saying, oh, I'm good with that. Yeah. You know, so I agree. I, I think this is something that's becoming endemic in our society of, of okay, I, I need a little bit of space. I need a little bit of flexibility. And this is what I'm willing to do for this job and for this pay. And if you can't accommodate uh, me, I've got other options. Yeah. No question. You know, in the course of planning for retirement, uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there that can lead you to make some pretty poor decisions, some dangerous myths that we hear all the time. Uh, you walk into our office and you've heard somewhere. So we want to make sure that there's at least four in particular that you really know you're not listening to. And that first myth is that I don't need to worry about saving for retirement <laughs> because I got I got Social Security. Yeah, social Security, it's yeah. Got me. It's a solid program. It'll be yeah. here forever, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's be serious. Solid, like Jello is solid. But but I'll tell you, I, I've got a great example of how to see if you can afford to live on Social Security before you draw benefits and before you retire. How about you just you just take your estimated benefit on the day you want to retire and just park that monthly amount in a separate savings account. And if you're married, um, the, your spouse's uh, separate benefit, and just try living off of that for a month or two. Just, just give it a try you. before yeah. you actually fill out papers and make that an irrevocable decision. I got a funny feeling you're going to say, no, that's not, I, I, I'm not going out to dinner. I can't travel. I can't, I can't do everything I want to do. So no, that, that's, a, that's a huge myth. And I, I don't think anybody is really saying, I expect my retirement to be funded strictly by Social Security. Um, so unfortunately, some people are in that boat. Uh, my dad was one of them. And, and his equation, his entire retired life was fixed at 1300 $150 a month, period. Not well, a fun situation. It's not. And, and here's the fact behind that myth, that Social Security was only ever meant to replace 40% of your pre-retirement income. And, and see, that gets us to our next myth, which is how much of that Social Security we can count on. If nothing's yeah. done to fix this program, that benefit, when you log on to myssa.gov that you see that's supposed to mm -hmm. be there when you retire, it won't be there. What, In what, fact, yeah. 75% maybe of that promised benefit, the numbers are shrinking the closer we get to 2035. Oh, and by the way, while we're on good news, how about it's going to be taxed? Um, yes. Almost, almost everybody gets taxed on at least 50% of it, and most people are going to find 85% of their benefit is taxed. Not taxed at 85%, but 85% of the amount you receive has to be declared as taxable income. Yeah, uh, huge, because I think many of you feel like I've been paying into the system forever. What? I have to pay taxes on it? It doesn't yep. feel fair, but it's reality. Another thing that's surprising to people is really how much uh, health care in retirement is going to cost. Yeah. If you think, oh, I get to Medicare, when I get to 65, I've got it made in the shade. It's going to cover everything. Not true. Well, it's it's not. And I, although in some cases, if you bought private health insurance, which for a couple can easily run twelve, thirteen hundred dollars a month, it may be a little bit cheaper. But you know, once you go on a Medicare, it's yeah, it covers most, if not all, with a good Medigap policy. But those rates are going up too, Amy. I, I yeah. mean, the the estimates we're seeing is Part B Medicare premiums may be as much as one hundred and seventy dollars next year. That's a big jump over over current rates.
You have to plan for that. Here's the Simply Money point. In order to retire well, you've got to ignore these retirement myths. Stick to the facts. Coming up at 634 in this virtual world, how do you set yourself apart during a Zoom interview? We've got advice from an expert. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money tonight. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. All right, if a few years ago... You would have reached out to me, told to me and asked me to Zoom you. I would have not had any idea what you were talking about. But now we all know what Zoom is, and it's become so common in our lives that now we're starting to do interviews and search for jobs via Zoom. Joining us tonight with some great insights on how to best do that and present ourselves in this virtual world is Carla Messer. She's the Chief Results Officer of Best Work, Assistant Professor at Indiana University East, Goodness, Carla, when you think about all the changes that have come about as the result of this pandemic, but this is one of the biggest ones, we've learned how to connect with people in such a virtual way. I agree, Amy. This has really basically disrupted everything we know about meetings. And if we think really back to those of us who remember things like the Jetsons and how futuristic it seemed that we might actually be talking to people that we could see. And then, you know, we began to do that with our iPhones. But now to just really be so dependent on this virtual medium is quite incredible. So how is it? Because I think for some people who are interviewing in this way, it has to be the first time. We've never done anything like this before. So how is it different to interview for a job and try to connect with someone when you're sitting in your own house in front of a laptop? This is a great question because we have so many opportunities to connect virtually on Zoom, but they're not all the same. So when we're one of a 100 participants on a call and our face is the size of a postage stamp, that's a radically different approach to planning than we need when we're the center of attention in an interview. And, you know, we, we talked about Zoom and Zooming, but the truth of the matter, what really trips up a lot of people is that they throw an application that they are not familiar with. They may be familiar with Zoom, but we're also using WebEx and Teams, and there are, you know, other applications that people are using. And so one of the common mistakes is just being un familiar with the tool that's being used. So the first question you should ask in the interview when you've been asked to, to do an, a virtual interview is what what tool, what application they're going to be using, and make sure you have that downloaded in the full version and have had a chance to know what all the buttons do if it's one that you haven't used. Oh my gosh, I'm so guilty of this. Luckily, it was just a meeting, not an interview, but someone said we need to connect. It was a pretty important issue. They sent me and it was in an app that I have never used before. And they were connected waiting for me for probably a good 15 minutes before I could figure out how to connect. So I, I can only imagine if you were in a high pressure situation, uh, stressed out about getting ready to do an interview and then can't connect on time. So understanding what that technology is, how it works, what else do we need to keep in mind? Well, of course, by now, if anybody has watched any uh, of the Zooms, you know when you see somebody who doesn't have the right background, when you see all of their things in their house piled up behind them, it's very distracting. We all have seen that before. And so these are the first things we have to do. And a lot of people are very worried about, I don't have a, a clean space. And particularly for those who live in a in a smaller space, we may not have the 
perfectly you know clear back wall to uh, serve as a background. And so this is why those virtual backgrounds have become so popular right now because you can have all kinds of things behind you and hide all of that stuff behind mm-hmm. a virtual background. And in fact, people can walk quietly behind you and not see you. And so if if you have the opportunity to pick a background and um, and or a virtual background, that's the first thing we want to do. In general, we're trying to eliminate any distractions. So if the interview is going on and they're distracted by sounds of a barking dog or somebody mowing the lawn outside or um, construction going on, all of those things are going to detract from your messaging. So finding a good space, a quiet space is is going to be the most important thing that you can do. And then, you know, from there, um, making sure that you've prepared your computer. These are the things that people often forget. Turn off your notifications, close your email and other files so that you don't get a pop-up right in the middle of an, of an interview that distracts you. You know, and also because this is such a different concept and you're right, it's one thing to sit in a meeting with 30 other people where your face is hardly able to be seen on this and and another thing to be interviewing. How do you practice for an interview that's going to take place via Zoom or one of these other meets? Yeah, practice is really important, even if it's just a, you know, a two or three minute production practice so that you know how to use all the buttons you have logged on, you have adjusted the volume, et cetera. And then every one of these tools has a recording feature. So you can either record yourself answering the questions, um, but even just pulling yourself up and looking at your own video and adjusting all of those elements will give you an idea of what it looks like. But, you know, nothing... Nothing speaks louder to us than seeing actual video or hearing ourselves to understand, is my volume loud enough? Am I going to be that person who's, um, whose head is, is very small and darkly lit on the screen? And those are things that don't make good first impressions. So what we're yeah. trying to do here is center our face and allow all of these nonverbals to be seen and to um, you know, be the focus of attention. You know, you mentioned nonverbals, and it is, it's difficult when someone's one-dimensional rather sitting across the table with you. And I know that, you know, often I've been in interviews in the past, and you can tell when it's wrapping up because their their posture starts to shift. Uh, you can tell it's over. But how do you, how can you tell in a Zoom interview whether, okay, it's time to exit, and how do you do that gracefully? Well, I have two answers to this. First of all, because I have kind of a rainmaker uh, background myself and, and sales, I think that in any interview, you should be closing at the end of the interview. And so one of the ways that you can do this is by asking the interviewers, what are the next steps? And then when they're finished, you know what those next steps are. But I also recommend in this situation where you are the interviewee to stay on until the very end and they either ask you to leave or that they say, uh, you know, here's what our next steps are and they log off first. One of the things we don't want to do is avoid missing any last second questions that they may have. Any horror stories, Carla, that you've heard about someone who just really bombed this process? Well, I I have a couple of stories where the, the the problem has been continually someone who does not adjust their volume or doesn't speak loud enough. And so, oh. you know, oftentimes in an interview, we're nervous, and that can cause us to speak either uh, slower, more quietly, or speed us up and speak really fast. So our rate of speech can be directly influenced oftentimes um, by our 
stress level. And so the biggest mistake really was an entire interview that at the end of the interview, the, the interview panel team on Zoom said, we didn't hear anything that this person had to say. They just basically kind of nodded and kept asking questions, but they didn't really hear anything despite asking numerous times for um, higher volume. And so this is the worst case scenario where the things that you need to share, your competitive advantage, are missed because of either a technical or because of a lack of confidence. So practicing really tells you whether or not you're going to be heard or not. Great insights on what to do and what not to do if you have to do a Zoom interview, a virtual interview. And I'm assuming that probably a lot of people, if you're out there looking for jobs right now, will likely be hired in that way. Uh, Carla Messer has been joining us tonight. She's the chief results officer of Best Work and an assistant professor at Indiana University East. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55 Kerasy, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. Just ahead, you know, inflation's hitting us all. We're going to tell you how you can cut back on some of those key day-to-day expenses. Maybe we can help your budget a little bit. There were more than 11 million job openings in early November. This is according to the job site Indeed, which is, Steve, like well above the number oh, of unemployed workers like this is there's a huge gap there and people looking for work in in jobs that are actually open right now well you know there were almost 11 million and one because last week i was in florida and toes in the sand and, oh, and no 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 my 75 <laughs> 80 degrees and i'm like i could get used to this and i come back to snow flurries and yes. oh cincinnati in november i love it but you come <laughs> back to the show and you get to be here with us oh yeah there's you, that you there's that you too. wouldn't miss oh, this yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know what I think is so interesting, Steve? When we talk about inflation and consumer sentiment right now, right? there's a lot of people that are just kind of feeling negative about the economy. Yet, when you look at the jobs market and how many of you feel okay about quitting, usually... You don't feel okay about quitting unless you feel good about the uh, about the economy. Well, you know, and, and we were talking to Andy Stout earlier about this, and, and you know, we're getting wrapped up, and I, I feel myself getting wrapped up in high inflation. These are problems, and oh, my goodness, and these supply disruptions, and, and you know, what's it going to be like around Christmas time and, and, and holiday season and everything? And, and you've got to take a step back sometimes and say, but the reason we have these problems is the economy is so good. Yes. I, I mean, when so you, much demand. Yeah, when people are quitting their jobs without anything in the wings, that tells me, wow, the economy is so strong that they know they're going to be better off by just quitting and, and interviewing somewhere. And that's unusual. That is yeah. not normal. And, and the quits rate, th- this is this is a record high. I, I mean, this is a huge number and a huge positive development. Yes. 4.4 million people left their work voluntarily. Like, these are numbers, man, going into this pandemic, I would have never expected this. Right. Steve, I think the frustrating thing for all of us is, is how it plays out in our day-to-day lives, right? You go to restaurants that used to be open, uh, and they're closed. And maybe if they are open, you say, well, why can't I sit over there? There's 10 empty tables. Well, we yeah. don't have enough people. That's it. I, um, went to the Florence Mall this weekend with my daughter, Jess. We needed to go into JCPenney's and get a couple of shirts. That she knew she needed. Uh, so these were like ten dollars shirts, right? So I'm, I'm, I go to pay for them. I go up to the jewelry counter, and the woman goes, "Oh, we only have jewelry customers here. You need to go <laughs> back to the line back there." And I'm like, "Okay, right." I mean, it, normally it really? wouldn't matter. So I go to where she's vaguely pointed across the store, and I, I couldn't see it from where she, where I was standing at the time. I finally get there, Steve. There are fifty people oh, in line. On. 
And I said to someone, I said, is this the line to check out? And, and she said, honey, it's even worse downstairs. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There must have been two people in the entire store at the mall on a weekend leading up to the holidays, you know, in the holiday season uh, to check people out. And so when we talk about these numbers, there's a very real yeah. impact on all there, of our lives yeah. in, a, in a negative way and in a positive way as well. I mean, there's opportunities out there. Well, my, my concern is, OK, if there's 11 million job openings, um, that means there are three million more jobs than unemployed people. So yeah. so how does this get fixed? This you know? equation will never work out. It's, it's, well, it will at some point, but it means a lot of people that aren't considered unemployed because they've given up the search would need to make a decision to go back to work. And I, what I wonder, Amy, is, is has there been a societal sh- shift in, in this country where maybe not every family wants a two-income family and all the stress involved anymore? Maybe some more spouses are going to stay home and have a little more flexibility at the expense of lower income, but maybe the, the lack or reduced stress as a result of being home more often is worth it to them. I, I will be interested in seeing how I this think- plays out. I think there's that dynamic, 100%. And I also think that there is a number of people um, who were getting close to retirement who hadn't planned on retiring, right? You were going to work until you were 65 and you're 61 or you're 62. And something about this pandemic made you realize that you like being at home or you, you know, whatever it is. And so there's a number of people who would have worked for several more years who are looking at retiring early. All of those things together are what are kind of making up this sort of disjointed job market right now. And it's really not supposed to end anytime soon. Now, if you're looking for a job, if you have any warehousing, shipping, consumer-facing retail, right, those are the jobs that are going Mm -hmm. like hotcakes right now, which I think goes to show what happened in Pennies this weekend. They can't hire people. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, to 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 fully be up and running the way that most of us are accustomed to, and, and we're we're seeing a lowering of requirements. No college degree, no problem. Uh, yeah. You know, and I happen to know somebody very well that didn't finish college and is extremely good at his job, but he's always worried about that coming back to bite him. Not so much anymore. It, yeah. You know, if you're a good worker and good at what you do, employers, they, they want you. And, and, and I'm starting to see, you know, a lot of people when they reevaluate their job, what, what's most important to you? Is it the money? Is it the, the flexibility, the ability to work remotely? I, I mean, these Lower are things. Stress, yeah. 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 These are things I think a lot of people are asking themselves. And if their current job doesn't give them what they need, then they're looking elsewhere. Yeah. Do your research, right? Weigh your options. If you're not happy, take a look around. And, you know, there's great glassdoor.com. There's great websites out there that'll show how much you should be making for the job that you do. Maybe it's that you're going to do a mid-career change, whatever it is. Uh, This is a worker's market. This is an employee's market. Take advantage of it. You have leverage right now. Here's a Simply Money point. All the numbers regarding the job market add up to one thing. This is a rare environment where workers have more leverage than ever before. Make sure you're using it. Coming up, politicians in Washington say Biden's new spending bill will save you money. Now, regardless of what happens in Washington now, we're going to tell you how you can take control and truly save. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. Here's a stat you're not going to like. A recent survey showed that Americans are paying more than ever for the top 10 most common bills. Nobody likes this. Nobody likes to pay more, Steve. But, you know, as we kind of dig deeper into this, there's certain things that we just pay for. We kind of do it. We don't think about it. And 
maybe you can do something. So if you're looking to kind of cut back this holiday season on on what you're spending, uh, here might be some great places to look at. Kicking cable to the curb. This is controversial, right? Cut the cord. Cutting the cord. Yeah. People love it. People hate it. People say it saves the money. People say they spend too much money on streaming services. Oh, I got caught up in this big Where time a few years ago. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I got back to the cord is the short short answer. But yeah. uh, I got a cheapskate, Steve. Um, I got tired <laughs> of DirecTV just every every year automatically renewing. Oh, it's 30 bucks more. You're going to have to cut channels. 30 bucks more a month. So I, I said, okay, the heck with them and, and did the digital route. Let's go like the old days. I still remember an antenna on the roof and getting the three networks and, and uh, PBS. And, and, and so I tried that route. It's not so easy anymore. You could do it. But you've got to know where the towers are. You've got to spend 60 bucks or so for a digital antenna. Oh, and, and you don't get all those other channels. Yeah. <laughs> you get, I mean, you get three or four main ones and then a whole bunch of side channels like Comet. You know, the things that you, you don't watch otherwise. So, yeah, you can cut you can cut the cost, but then you're going to find yourself, okay, but now I think I want to stream, I don't know, Apple for, for Ted Lasso. I mean, yeah. what, are, what are some of your favorites? You well, know? so I have I have Apple for Ted Lasso, and then we have Hulu for The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. It's like one show that we watch on. It's, I know. And, you know, it's ten episodes, and then it's over. And so, actually, I was thinking about that. Like, I think we're just going to cut a number of these and look at them because we we, we have Disney, we have Hulu, yeah, we've it got adds Apple. Up. Yep. It does. It adds up. That's one way to cut back. Another thing is to shop around for gas. If you start paying attention, right, from one exit to the next, when you're going to work, when you're going to the grocery store, or whatever, there is sometimes a huge discrepancy and yeah. how much you'll pay just by going a half a mile in one direction or another. Amy, gasbuddy.com. That is yep. my favorite website. And it's incredible. 30, 40 cents for the exact same gas, sometimes the exact same brand. And sometimes it's even closer to you than some of the other places that you've been yeah. going to. Yeah, I, I use that religiously and, and do my uh, do the right thing and put in the uh, prices at the station I'm at. It, it is such a time saver and money saver. You know, this is one of those things where once you get into the habit of it, you will realize you're really starting to save and it can, you know, a f 20 cents, 30 cents, 40 cents a gallon at a time can really add up and make a difference. Yeah. And it's really just a matter of pulling out your phone before you leave your house and figuring which direction you're going to head when you have to fill up. It's not driving 10 miles out of your way. It's just being a little more strategic. Also, keep your grocery shopping in check. If you're one of those people who um, had to go to the store in person before maybe the pandemic, but now you'll do it online. There's a lot of savings to be had there. Yeah. Because, Steve, I don't know if you're that kind of person, but like when I go and take the kids with me, oh, mom, we love it. Oh, mom, my friend had this at lunch. Like, and we end up spending 30 bucks more oh. on silly crap. Like, I, it's, it's, yes. I'm not allowed to impulse. I'm not allowed to go grocery shopping because I am Mr. <laughs> impulse Buy. So this is how you cut out the impulse buys. You start the shopping online. You get into a routine. One way that you can truly save. You've been listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We are the talk station.